Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I'm so glad that you could join us. This is actually a part two segment of a show that we did a couple of weeks ago. We were talking with Dr. Weisenmiller, who's the chairman of the California um, Energy Commission, and Dr. Suzanne Moser, who is one of the leading scientists who uh, shepherded a brand new body of research that has come out that it's it's actually the third assessment that California has done on climate change and some of the impacts of climate change. But what's new and what's really exciting about this third body of research is that it incorporates not just uh, some of the likely outcomes that will happen as a result of climate change within the state of California, but the probability or the likelihood um, within very specific regions of the state that some of these climate change uh, uh, climate changes will actually occur, arming local government officials and local communities with the kind of information that's very specific to help them create adaptation programs and, and policies. And that's what's really, really encouraging about this body of research. One of the things we talked about when we had Dr. Moser, Dr. Weisenmiller on before was that we have a situation in the state of California and there are other states in the U.S. that are dealing with this kind of thing where we're beginning to see a great deal of human development and building and, uh, and, and new communities springing up in areas where we don't necessarily have the indigent uh, natural resources to support that development. For instance, in the state of California, we see the population growing by leaps and bounds in Southern California, yet most of the uh, the energy and the water, uh, especially the water, that is uh, helping those communities thrive is not coming from their local area. It's coming from other parts of the state which require a lot of natural resources just to move that water into those areas. And so, Dr. Moser, I wanted to to talk to you about this. I haven't finished reading all of the reports yet, and so I may have missed this. But is there any recommendation on the table to encourage a shift in California's population growth from the southern water-starved part of the state to the northern part of the state where water doesn't have to travel so far to customers. Glad to continue this conversation. So to your question, um, no. There is not a study and not a recommendation um, coming out of this third assessment that we did um, that examined this option that you just talked about uh, instead of moving water, moving people. Um, The studies that we do have um, looked at improvements in water management in light of uncertainty and at water pricing options and institutional barriers that get in the way of managing this water more efficiently, but no one really looked at moving people from the dry parts of the state to the wetter parts. Um, And, you know, think about it. People live where they live for all kinds of reasons, not just whether there's water. <laughs> I mean, we have people living in Phoenix and, you know, <laughs> San Diego right. where there isn't all that much. So um, wherever they grew up or moved to, water just comes out of the faucet, and they kind of expect that that continues to be the case. So 
they want policymakers to make sure it keeps coming. And migration for environmental reasons, you know, was actually quite common in the history of many cultures over uh, over time. It's really a, res- a response of last resort, I would say. Um, we'll do a lot of other things before we actually have to leave home, right? So I mm-hmm. doubt we'll see any studies or recommendations that move anyone from the southern part of California up to the northern part anytime soon, um, or mm-hmm. if ever. Um, but, you know, I think we ought to concern ourselves with how we can work together toward a future in which we all still get some water, um, even if we can't all have the exact same amount or waste as much as we used to in the past. So there's lots of things we can do before we have to go to such extreme measures. Mm-hmm. Dr. Weisenmiller, as the chairman of the California Energy Commission, charged with the energy management of the state, um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, um, are there policies that you might like to see in place or at least some discussions? Uh, I don't know whether it would be with the League of Cities or what have you around this idea of, you know, promoting or incentivizing uh, people to live in areas of the state where we can get natural resources to them more readily. I think I think one of the things that's really on the table, going back to uh, a bill by Senator Steinberg, is to look at as we look at, at land use planning, to look at the energy implications of that. And so, obviously, you're, you're looking more statewide macro parts, but it, it's also as going forward, you know, there there are trade-offs between having denser uh, use of the urban areas with infill development versus having more suburban sprawl. And certainly in terms of transportation needs, in terms of greenhouse gas needs, and certainly one of the things that this report points to is that where we have development at that uh, urban interface to our uh, forest, you know, that, that, that can really heighten the uh, wildfire implications. So I think one of the things which we're really trying to build into the planning is a study of what the implications, environmental implications and energy implications are of some of our land use planning. And, and certainly as we're going forward, you know, one of the things that's, that's coming out from the study is that things will be hotter and drier. And so, again, that will certainly complicate having more development in those hotter, drier areas, particularly the ones that might be prone to, to uh, fire hazards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we certainly, you know, a lot of that type of planning is, you know, at the local level. And so one of the things that certainly we are working with the Office of Planning and Research on is trying to give the local planners the tools to really uh, deal with some of this adaptation as part of our planning process. Mm-hmm. Dr. Weisenmiller, during the press conference, I think it was about three weeks ago, when uh, these, uh, I think it's 35 or 36 reports uh, that that are part of this new body of research came out, um, you mentioned that one of the key findings of this research was that the state's electricity system is much more vulnerable than was previously understood. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit more and help us understand what you mean by that and what the study found. Sure, sure. I think, I think there's, a, there's a couple of things that are really important to focus on in this study is that uh, looking over time, we've known that things are getting hotter or we know things are getting drier. Uh, this study has taken a big step to try to say, well, how much is that? And that allows us to start combining some of those effects. And from that combination, 
then look at the vulnerabilities of our systems and try to come up with, with some strategies to address those vulnerabilities in terms of either mitigation or adaptation. So, for example, on the electricity side, you know, we do have this combination of factors that we're trying to deal with. On the one hand, it will be hotter and the heat will be more sustained, which will mean that we will, we will have higher peak loads. And at the same time, we have not only higher peak loads, but we're looking at efficiency drops on our thermal power plants or in some of our substations, some of our transmission lines, where, again, we can look at how much those will drop over time with a greater temperature. And then we're also looking at the impact on our hydro system where we are, with the snowpack melting earlier, we're not storing that snow in the Sierra so we can use it when we most need it at peak times. And then you combine that with the threat of forest fires, particularly around the transmission lines. And again, a good example of the types of detail in the study is it identifies specific portions of our high voltage transmission network, particularly in the upper part of the state and, and feeding into Los Angeles, and finding that there's a 40% greater chance of, of fires around those. So again, we're in a position where we can take a comprehensive look at these various factors, tie them all together, and build that into the planning process to make sure that we have reliable power by both looking at ways to mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but also in terms of as we design our energy system and, it's, it's, and replace aging parts of it, it's a chance to do that smarter so that it can deal with the emerging climate realities. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Moser, the summary of the report, and I, and like I said, I haven't read through all of the reports yet. I did read through the summary. Um, it states that California's groundwater, essentially our aquifers, are by and large unmanaged. And to me, this is a little bit unsettling because I read so many stories and news reports from all over the world where aquifers are being emptied at a much faster rate that they can be recharged. And I actually was pretty surprised to learn that California's groundwater isn't managed um, you know, the way that, that I would have expected. Um, can you talk about the current status of our groundwater use and what changes are recommended by the study for better managing this critical element of our water supply? Yeah, so you're correct. Um, the groundwater is not managed by the state, and I want to underline that, um, say through, you know, say a permit system that would allocate groundwater um, in similar fashion as water rights currently allocate portions of the surface water, like say from the Colorado River or something, uh, to different users. But groundwater is managed sort of, you know, in, in an un, uh, even fashion at the local level in various ways. So, for example, there are well spacing ordinances or groundwater management ordinances in some localities. The problem is that not all of the localities manage their groundwater sustainably. And so in some instances, like you just said, groundwater gets overdrawn more than it's naturally replenished through rainfall. And so those are the places that where we get into trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the issue. In California, no one is responsible for regularly monitoring who withdraws how much groundwater where. <laughs> so we don't really have a comprehensive picture of the groundwater situation in the state. Um, so now, you know, you have the situation that um, Dr. Weisenmiller just mentioned. It, it gets uh, longer, hotter, dry seasons, less water is stored in the snowpack. Um, so, you know, what your, your regular or your logical solution to that would 
be is that you locally draw more heavily on groundwater, right? Right. But that's like withdrawing money from your bank account without ever checking whether there's still any in it. <laughs> right. Well, you know where, how that story ends. So one of the studies that we did in this assessment is to look at groundwater, um, basically, to and, and that study concluded that the most important first step we can take in terms of managing our groundwater better uh, is to monitor it, um, looking at our account, if you will, and seeing what goes in and comes out, and so we know how much we actually have to play with. So it's a, it's a good example of one of these very practical implications of this research for water managers and for the people who could put a system like this into place. Mm-hmm. You know, what, uh, the thing that comes to mind when I think about this situation in terms of monitoring the groundwater, not just for how much there is, but how you know, clean it is. I mean, as we begin to look at many different energy sources, uh, fracking for natural gas is becoming more and more in vogue. And some of the concerns that people have raised about that process is also um, kind of centered on groundwater and the implications of the wastewater from that process being injected into deep underground wells that may potentially poison the groundwater. And if we don't have a way to monitor that, if we don't have uh, state regulation on on protecting that water, um, I'm a little bit concerned about that. I mean, is there anybody uh, working on those issues uh, for the state of California as it relates to, to fracking? Um, you know, I'm actually not um, aware right now. I'm pretty sure because it's such a, a booming uh, interest, as you say, that there are people, geologists and whatever, who are already beginning to assess this. But I think it's more than, you know, sort of those particular uh, contaminants that might be of concern. I mean, there's a lot of agricultural runoff um, that gets into our water sources, you know. So I think you, you're raising an issue that is uh, absolutely vital, which is the question of water quality along with do we have enough of it. Um, mm-hmm. And so in coastal areas, you have salt water intruding into, um, you know, the, the aquifers right at the coast. So there's a number of ways in which the supplies could be contaminated in ways that are um, not not good. <laughs> and so right. that is part of, you know, it's, it's really monitoring the quantity and the quality of the water and making sure that it's adequate for the different uses um, and that we put the cleanest water to the highest use, i.e., you know, what you and I drink. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and what we put onto our crops as well because the water that we use in our agricultural process ends up in our bodies as well. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but as we do, I invite everybody to take a look at the website that is sort of the portal for all of this information. You can go to www.climatechange.ca.gov. The uh, studies that we've been referencing can be found if you kind of scroll down in the lower right-hand side of that webpage. There's a area called popular links and if you click on adaptation that is where you will find this latest body of research over 120 scientists here in the state of california have been working hard to put this together so take a look at that while we go to a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with more go green radio Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our guests today are Dr. Bob Weisenmiller. He's the chairman of the California Energy Commission. And Dr. Suzanne Moser, who is one of the leading scientists um, in this brand new body of research that has been developed by over 120 scientists here in the state of California, dealing with a very important issue, not just climate change and what may be coming our way in the state of California, but also some uh adaptation strategies that can be implemented in a very specific way in local communities based on some of the vulnerabilities that they have. It's a very detailed study. And for those of you who are listening outside of the state of California, and you may be thinking, well, good for California, they've got this research. It's possible that your state is doing some of the same things. So I'd encourage you to look to your state governments to see what kind of climate change studies they're doing, to see what kind of adaptation strategies are being put forward, and if if you don't find any, well, that's something that you can contact your local uh, state representative or state senator to find out more about to see what's going on in your state. Before we went on break, we were talking about uh, this situation that we have in California where our groundwater, or essentially our aquifers, are unmanaged, at least at the state level. And as we go forward with looking at many different ways of, of increasing the supply of energy to our state, um, some folks are talking about you know fracking and that's becoming in vogue in a number of different areas in the U.S. and of course some of the concerns around that particular technology and that strategy to extract natural gas from the ground has been um, its impact on the water supply on our groundwater supply because the wastewater from that uh, process is injected into deep deep wells into the ground. And so, Dr. Weisenmiller, as the chairman of the California Energy Commission, and you're charged with bringing the state an energy supply that will meet our demands, what are your thoughts about this nexus between uh, fracking and the the 
the benefits of using natural gas and uh, the impact on our, our groundwater supply. Sure. Uh, I was going to say, to talk about fracking in two contexts. First, one of the things we do at the Energy Commission is every other year we put out what's called the Independent Energy Policy Report. And one of the things we have to look at is what are the important issues in energy. And so obviously natural gas and the role of natural gas is one of those issues that we've, we examined last year. And we'll, again, go back to it. And, and obviously with fracking, you've seen a lot of increase in the amount of potential production in the U.S. of natural gas, a reduction in cost, uh, economic cost. But then the question becomes, what are the environmental costs? And as government does a better job of regulating gas fracking, Mm-hmm. then what's what's going to be the trade-off? Obviously, as we do that more environmentally sensitively, particularly, as you said, on the, the water issues, then there will be less production and the cost will be higher. And so we've certainly been digging into that. I, I think certainly there have been some very good studies about what needs to be done to make sure that the environmental consequences of fracking are, are mitigated. Now, having said that, there's no real gas fracking in California at this time. However, the same sorts of technologies are, are used for oil production, and not only in California, but, but throughout, throughout the U.S. And so there's been an increase not only in natural gas production, but also oil, domestic oil production, which is associated with this, the fracking. And in California, a lot of our production of oil is down in, in Kern County, and it's a very... Um, it, well, it's basically it's solid, so that to get the oil to be viscous enough to move, you have to inject steam and or chemicals or CO2 or some combination, so the oil would actually flow mm-hmm. uh, and can be produced. And so there's been a lot of legislative attention this year to, the, to that issue. One of uh, our, our associated state agencies is the Department of Conservation, which has an oil and gas division. And one of their responsibilities is looking at fracking. And they've had a series of hearings and workshops on fracking, again, not for natural gas production, but for oil production to make sure it's done in California in an environmentally acceptable way. Mm-hmm. Well, in Kern County, they're kind of the the water kings uh you know in the state of california and there's a lot of ag down there as well so i'm sure that they they definitely want to protect their water supply um you know dr weisenmiller besides the availability of energy to meet the state's demand what are you projecting in terms of energy pricing as a result of climate change and how do you think that policymakers ought to react to that kind of information um, as we look at these studies and predict the the likelihood of of climate change's impact on energy pricing yeah that's an important topic i think the the first thing that people really have to understand is that they're all cost already and we are paying those, you know, it's not like our grandchildren will have to pay higher prices for energy. It's affecting people's pocketbook now. And the examples I would come up with that, one of the things the study noted is between 1895 and 2011, the average temperature in the state is 1.7 degrees higher. And so that means that right now we have higher temperatures in the summer, Right now, we have higher peak loads, 
And peak load is when you buy the most expensive power. So it's already translating into an economic effect. Or similarly, with wildfires, you know, and again, back at, at our press event, one of the things I found most staggering was the impact on wildfires and that basically, historically, we've had one really bad fire per decade. Mm-hmm. And we get to the turn of, the, you know, we get into our century, and it's more like one a year. And some years wow. we've even had two. We've actually already had one of the top 20 fires in California's history this year. So, and those fires, as you know, have, have huge consequences in terms of, well, I mean, pe- people, people are killed by them, but mm-hmm. also in terms of the economic impact. So, and as you look forward, unless we take action, again, there will be more fires in the future. So that's why it's really important to try to, you know, deal with the, you know, existing and potential price impacts by using our energy wisely, uh, basically looking at mitigation measures, which tend to focus on energy efficiency and greater production of renewables, and also adaptation, trying to figure out how to do things sensitive to the changes to avoid some of those consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you look at the economic impact of higher prices for energy, particularly during peak load times, but, you know, translate that into kitchen table speak. That means that schools that operate during peak load times are paying higher prices. It means that companies and businesses that are trying to create jobs and you know, pay as little as they can for non-business producing, non-jobs producing uh, uh, expenses as they have to. That that higher pricing during that time frame has a direct economic impact on the state and on taxpayer subsidized um, functions like our schools. I mean, you can't send kids to kindergarten at midnight when energy prices are low. So you know, it's it's it really is a very serious issue that has quite a ripple effect. Um, and I think that that's something that we need to pay attention to. And that's why even on this show we've talked about things like uh, energy storage technology that would allow us to capture, say, for instance, wind energy uh, during the midnight hours when the wind is really blowing, but nobody's really using that energy, and being able to store that energy for use the next day during peak load times. And I'm sure energy storage is part of what you're looking at. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. We've, we've, been, we've done a number of demonstration projects with different types of technologies there was a, a marvelous opportunity for the state or for everyone when, as part of the R stimulus money, there were specific R&D dollars set aside for storage research, mm-hmm. and we partnered with some of our utilities and some of our more innovative companies to where the Energy Commission would put up some money, say 10 or 20 percent, and uh, the federal government would put up the lion's share of the money and use that to really get some experience with utility scale storage and see how we see how we can drive through innovation how through innovation we can drive the cost down mm-hmm. and the performance up Absolutely. You know, Dr. Moser, we've been hearing so much in the last couple, three weeks about 
the West Nile virus and how deadly it's been and, and what a record year it's been for infectious diseases, um, not just West Nile. We've had the hantavirus from Yosemite and, and just all kinds of concerns that infectious diseases always have on public health officials and the general population. But what impact will climate change have on these types of infectious diseases and what recommendations did the study have, say, for local public health officials in order to adapt? Yeah, the the West Nile virus in particular this summer um, has resulted, I think I checked as of last Tuesday, something like more than 1,900 reported cases cases of this flu-like disease all over the U.S. and um, almost 90 people so far have died. So it's the highest number of reported cases since this disease has ever been detected in the U.S. um, in the late 1990s. So um, as with all of these types of diseases, the elderly and anyone with a compromised immune system are really at greatest risk of getting the worst symptoms and, of course, are at greatest risk of dying. So it's, it very much picks up on this theme that we discussed last time with vulnerability, um, who is most sensitive to them, who is exposed to it, and also how well can people deal with it. But if you, if you let me... Um, I'll just stay with West Nile for just another moment to explain um, how infectious disease can link with climate change. It's such a great example. And, in fact, the question has been asked um, this summer quite a bit whether this outbreak can be also linked to climate change. So West Nile is transmitted mainly among birds via mosquitoes. There are studies that show that mosquitoes pick up that virus from birds more readily in higher temperatures. And higher temperatures also increase the likelihood of transmission. So the hotter it is, the better the chances that a mosquito will carry the virus successfully from one to another infected bird or, as the case may be, to us humans. Now, most of us would think you'd see more mosquitoes when it's rainy and wet and, you know, rather than when it's as dry as it's been right now um, Mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. And while it turns out that the main mosquito currently involved in the West Nile transmission is one of those that is mostly found in cities, and it thrives in drought conditions. Wow. <laughs> so it breeds underground surprising. in water that sits in city drains, and then meanwhile, drought is really hard on the predators, on the mosquitoes, like frogs or dragonflies. And so it just spreads like wildfire in hot, dry conditions um, like we have right now. And so that leads me to a more general point about infectious diseases and climate change. We actually have just a few studies for California um, on that link um, because mostly here we've been more concerned with heat and fire and air pollution and such. But the basic point is something we actually understand quite well. Climate change will create just those conditions that allow many of the transmitting organisms, like these insects, to survive in milder winters, replicate more rapidly and more often in warmer temperatures and are better at transmitting the viruses when they do transmit. So in the future, we may simply have more of these disease-carrying organisms in our environment. Um, How dangerous they will be, you know, to us humans, that is, again, a question of, um, you know, are we exposed to it? How vicious is is the particular disease? So there's much we still have to learn about that to, in order to predict this. Um, but most importantly is, and this is an implication for what we can do, is improve the surveillance. we got to detect very early on when these diseases show up and how and where they spread so that we can you know, not only be prepared in the places where it seems to be going, 
but also to educate our healthcare professionals, um, doctors, public health departments, who may or may not be all familiar with, you know, some of these very odd infectious diseases, and make sure that they're ready and, um, and you know, stand there to, to respond effectively when people fall ill. Mm-hmm. Wow, and and that is surprising news. I mean, I I always think of mosquitoes in damp and muggy, yep. uh, wet environments. So this is big news. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we'll be talking much more about this new climate change study that's come out of the state of California and the adaptation strategies that are recommended. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. So glad that you could join us. Our guests today are Dr. Bob Weisenmiller. He's the chairman of the California Energy Commission. And Dr. Suzanne Moser, she was one of the leading scientists um, who was involved with this brand new body of research that we've been talking about. Um, here in the state of California, we've been studying climate change for a while, but this brand new body of research is talking about how to adapt. If you'd like to check out more information on this, don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.climatechange.ca.gov. And that is where you can find the latest and greatest information about what the state is doing, not just to study climate change, but also to help local communities, whether they be government officials or local nonprofit organizations and community service organizations, adapt to some of the climate change realities that are coming for us in the next few years and actually in some cases have already begun. 
Um, Dr. Weisenmiller, you know, we're talking about tools that you uh, and the, the research uh, team has been developing, tools for public policymakers to help them create strategies to adapt to climate change. But at the end of the day, public policymakers can make great decisions and energy providers can deliver all the energy they possibly can. But you know, so much of what drives the demand for greater supplies of energy happens behind the closed doors of people's homes when nobody's looking. Do you think that the average Californian understands how delicate and how vulnerable our energy system is? And is there a plan for bringing everyday Californians sort of into the loop or into the know so that maybe they're inspired to do their best to conserve energy and be more energy efficient? Exactly. I mean, energy efficiency is one of our real opportunities to get the, get the services we want, you know, the lighting, the cooking, the, the cooling, but doing, you know, getting those services with less energy use. And in terms of examples of what we can do as we all work together on these issues, um, as, as you know, the San Ofri 2 and 3 have had issues, and neither one of those plants is available this summer. Mm-hmm. And they're significant power plants in size, a significant part of the resource mix in Southern California. And so a couple weeks ago, we had hot temperatures down in the south. We were concerned about maintaining reliability there, even with those plants gone. And so we have what's called a, a flex alert, where you've probably seen those av- advertisements on television, basically encouraging Californians to, to use their fingers to switch off power needs in those peak periods, which are from typically from four to seven. Mm-hmm. You know, it varies a little bit across each other, some maybe six. And so when we had the system being stressed by this temperature increase down in San Diego and Southern and Edison, we basically had a flex alert where we asked people to, you know, use energy more wisely, and about a thousand megawatts of load dropped off. Wow! And that that that's a that really helped to get through that situation. Um, and with that, you know, things things while being you know loads were, were tight, loads were high, and we're trying to make sure supply and demand were balanced, particularly in those areas. That with everyone's help, we you know, manage not to have a crisis. Now, mm-hmm. we will, again, certainly my, I am the state's liaison to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and, and my message has been uh, to really make sure the plant is safe before mm-hmm. it's turned back on and that we will come up with a plan to keep reliable power in California. And part of that that plan is for our citizens to help in that situation. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an example of when things are tough, but at the same time, overall, we need to be looking at ways to conserve energy. And some examples of what we're doing here and what people can do is that one of the things we adopted uh, last year was a, an efficiency standard for battery chargers. Now, we all had these proliferation of iPhones, uh, you know, every, everything. I mean, I think the average house in California has 11 of these little chargers. Guilty and, is charged. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, I think everyone's probably heard of the term of, of vampire, you know, mm-hmm. energy devices, where basically you plug in your your cell phone, and instead of 
stopping charging once the once the battery is recharged, that it just keeps charging, you know, sending more and more power there. And, and when you fill, fear some of the older chargers, they actually get warm mm-hmm. uh, because they again they don't shut off once everything once the battery is charged. And again, you've got your electric toothbrush, you know, just all throughout the house, you've got these devices. And so we have a standard which has the simple notion of when the charger, when, when the battery is charged, that the charger is shut off. And, you know, I've, obviously there, there are certainly battery chargers you can buy already that, mm-hmm. that do that, but certainly some of, the, some of them don't. And so it's, it's amazing the amount of power we can save with these and, mm-hmm. and certainly looking forward to, again, who knows how many chargers you're going to have in your house 10 years from now. But basically trying to make sure, again, that we're not, it would be like pumping gasoline in your, in your tank, and once it's full, just continuing to pump the gasoline and having it spill on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an example of how, as we make choices and as, as people go out and buy appliances, there are certainly energy labels on those, energy star labels that tell you whether the specific refrigerator or air conditioner is more or less efficient. So if you pick the more efficient one, which uses less energy, obviously is going to keep your, your food as cool as any other refrigerator, but do it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. That again, that translates into the, the bottom line for California in terms of energy requirements. And particularly, uh, not, those can be all year round or they could be in those peak periods. Mm-hmm. Um, the other examples is that we have just also adopted new building standards, which will, for new construction, will reduce their energy use for single family about 25% in the wow. future. So that's, and that's the most the Energy Commission has ever achieved in an update to those standards. We do those about every four years to take into account new technologies and new and higher cost. But again, that, those will really allow people to be very comfortable in their houses but use less energy. Um, and we're now starting a proceeding actually very interesting on most of our houses in California were built before the Energy Commission or before sta- these types of standards. And so the question is, how do we help people retrofit their existing houses so mm-hmm. they're comfortable, use less energy, uh, and again, leave them better positioned for the higher temperatures coming and the greater cost for power coming due to climate change. Mm-hmm. But so one of our one of our greatest resources is indeed mining that those energy efficiency options. It's so true because you know on the one hand it's it's great when during a flex alert or something like that people change their behavior and use less energy. But what's even better is putting in energy efficiency measures so that overall we need less energy and therefore use less energy. So on the one hand, you know, it, it, living the way we do during a flex alert may not be uh, comfortable or sustainable every single day, but by putting in energy efficiency measures, uh, we can reduce the amount of, of energy that we actually need in order to live very similarly. And I think that's terrific that we're focusing on both conservation and efficiency. Uh, Dr. Moser, I'd love for you to talk about uh, another public health issue. We had talked about infectious diseases, but rising temperatures can impact the ground ozone layer. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what impact that could have on the air quality and hence the public health in California. 
Sure, happy to do that. Um, it's obviously a really important issue here in California, you know, where air pollution, pollution is already a fairly big problem in some of our air basins. Now, th- I want to make sure that you and, and the uh, listeners understand that ozone, um, as you know, is one of those components of smog, and we all know what that looks like. It's that mm-hmm. ugly brown cloud over the cities. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I want to distinguish that from the ozone, you know, that we experience here sort of at that level, at the city ground level, if you will, from the high, ozone high in the stratosphere. The ozone high up there is actually really good for us. It shields us from harmful UV radiation from the sun. But when ozone is down here where we breathe and live, <laughs> it damages our lung tissue and other things, and, and that's obviously the problem. So mm-hmm. now the issue with climate change and the ground-level ozone is that higher temperatures actually increase the formation of the stuff that hurts us right here down on the ground. So ozone is produced more readily in higher temperatures. Um, here in California, we actually have a lot of efforts going on already to reduce what we call ozone precursors, and that is pollutants out of tailpipes and from industrial processes like nitrogen oxide and carbon monoxide and something called volatile organic compounds. It's, it's those elements, if you will, that turn into ozone when they react with each other in daylight. Um, now, that photochemical reaction basically speeds up when it's warmer. And so that's how we get from higher temperatures to getting more damaging ozone. What that means is that as temperatures rise even more in the future is that we have to, if you will, double our efforts um, to deal with these precursors. Some people call that a climate change penalty. Basically, we have to do more to keep the air quality where it is now, and if it's not good enough, you know, by whatever our own standards, then we need to actually double our efforts to get to improve the air quality of the future. Now, the bright light here, and this is another example of just what you heard from Dr. Weisenmiller um, with, you know, some of the actions that we can take, um, like home insulation, it's, it reduces your energy use, it reduces your emissions, um, but it also helps you prepare for hotter temperatures. And the same is true here with how we can address ozone. Um, basically, these ozone precursors pretty much all come from fossil fuels. So the same source that actually makes, you know, these heat-trapping gases that cause the climate to warm in the first place. So we could address both the ultimate cause of warming and the cause of this ground-level ozone formation that, you know, messes with our air quality by moving toward clean energy sources like the renewables or, you know, just using less energy like with efficiency measures like you just heard. Um, so to me, this is like a, such a great example um, of how we can move toward cleaner energy and uh, cleaner air all in one go. Mm-hmm. And besides tailpipes and things like that, what are some of the other sources of these ozone precursor uh, conditions? Well, some of the nitrogen oxides come from uh, uh, agriculture. Some of the other ones, like carbon monoxide and some of these volatile organic compounds, there's some natural ones, but some of them that get emitted um, by, you know, in refineries and industrial processes um, that use a lot of chemicals. So it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty um, vile mix, <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to be frank about it. So they can com- combine from a number of ingredients that are commonly used, you know, in cleaning materials and all kinds of uh, solvents and things like that. So um, it's, it's really a large group of people uh, or, or processes and, and um, industries where it gets um, 
used or where they get um, produced. So we, we can, you know, look at each one of those and sort of try to um, see, you know, how can you substitute some of these chemicals um, to others that are less um, damaging. Um, that is certainly a way to get at some of the, um, you know, reducing these precursors. But the number one source is still fossil fuels in all its various forms, whether it comes out of the tailpipe or out of the smokestack or whatever. And so it, it's really important that we look at that. Um, and, you know, that's for me the win-win, where you deal with the causes of climate change and the cause of the air pollution problem. It's a it's a, a double whammy. So that that's uh, it's a good strategy because it's mitigation and adaptation all in one yep. uh, strategy. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more on the adaptation study done for the state of California. Check out the website as we're on commercial at www.climatechange.ca.gov. More Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, we're talking to Dr. Weisenmiller, Chairman of the California Energy Commission, and Dr. Suzanne Moser, who is one of the leading scientists who worked with a team of over 120 scientists across the state of California to develop more than 30 different reports about the likelihood of various climate changes in different parts of the state, and furthermore, what some uh, adaptation strategies could look like that local communities can um, can implement. And so this is a great body of research. If you want to take a look at it, don't close this tab in your web browser. Open up a new tab and go to www.climatechange.ca.gov, and there you'll find uh, some links to all of those uh, studies. Dr. Weisenmiller, it's pretty clear from our discussion that we need as much renewable energy as we can get. <laughs> and uh, a lot of models have been put forth about uh, different ways that we could get distributed energy generation going, get more and more communities um, 
creating their own solar, wind, and other renewable energy strategies. Do you foresee California adopting public policy similar to some other states where people are able to sell excess energy to the grid if they're able to install more renewable energy capacity than they can use? Um, Do you think that those kinds of monetary incentives to produce as much renewable energy as possible for individuals or, for instance, companies who can invest the capital to install that generation capacity would help California increase its energy supply? Well, the obvious thing when you look at climate change is we need as much of in a portfolio of renewables, our total mixture. And I think part of part of the question, or at least trying to explore that a little bit, first of all, I would like to refer people to uh, another website, which is www.ca and then cleanenergyfuture.org.progress. And in that, what we in the Brown administration did did at the beginning of the year was put up basically a report card for the state on where are we on renewables, where are we on distributed generation, where are we on weaning ourselves from coal. And it's a really neat uh, place to look at uh, how we are doing. And I think part of, part of that answer, although, again, we have to look not just to com- the competition but the challenge that we're facing in terms of climate, is that we're at, we lead the U.S. Now, we can talk about the other, the rest of the world in a second, but, for example, yesterday I was, I was at an event in Sacramento where California now has over 1,000 megawatts of large-scale solar providing power into the grid. And, again, going back to that tight period, uh, that helped because most of that solar was on peak. Mm-hmm. If you look at the whole mixture, uh, you know, it's... We, if you add up the solar, the wind, the geothermal, the small hydro, the biomass, it's about 5,800 megawatts. So, again, at this point, we're getting about 20% of our wholesale power is coming from renewables. Mm -hmm. Now, we also have a lot of distributed generation, and that's another couple thousand megawatts. And for for reference on how we're doing relative to the west of the U.S., we have uh, over 100,000 Installations ranging from people's rooftops to, you know, more of a field next to an, a, an industrial commercial building. And we have, as I said, over 100,000 of those. It's producing uh, several thousand megawatts. Mm-hmm. And the next state in comparison is New Jersey, which has 7,500 installations and about 70 megawatts. And, and some of those 70 megawatts are being installed by California companies based mm-hmm. upon their experience here, so again, helping build our jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, what we generally find in terms of the areas where we're trying to really simplify things and push it through, one is trying to really deal with interconnection. Uh, unfortunately, our distribution system is designed to move power from a power plant to your house, and so suddenly when you try to move power from your house back into the grid, uh, there, there are some issues there that we mm-hmm. need to redesign some of that system to make sure that it's, it's safe for everyone uh, as we go forward. As I said, we looked at the, we compared our distribution system to, say, Germany, which has a lot more distributed gen, and they just have set up more of a network and less, this one, less of this one-way flow. So mm-hmm. we need to, we're working on interconnection to try to simplify that. We also have found generally whenever we ask for renewable bids, we get... 20 to 30 times as much as we need. And so what we're trying to do is take some now, but always 
keep this industry sustainable and at the same time make sure that California can benefit as costs come down. So mm-hmm. we don't want to buy all the renewable this year, but we would like to buy some this year. You know, every year we want to buy more renewables, keep a sustainable industry, and at the same time be able to take advantage of the cost reductions. Now, some of the other countries, Germany, Italy, and Spain, have done a lot more in, in, installations fast of distributed gen, and that's really helped to bring our cost down. Mm-hmm. But again, they've, they... We're trying to take a more measured approach so we get a sustainable level every year for the industry uh, and get some benefits with ratepayers as mm-hmm. opposed to just buying as much as we can right now and mm-hmm. buying basically this year's expensive, this year's photovoltaic cost as opposed to, say, the 2019 cost, but mm-hmm. just to spread it out a little bit more. So I, th- well, I think we're doing well. I think we can do better. Mm-hmm. And we, we've sort of identified where we need to work to get to do better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, I think certainly encourage people to look at our report card on these things and uh, keep encouraging us to do more. Well, and I can't help but think, I mean, I have, I speak all over the country, and um, when I go to states like New York or Tennessee where they actually allow people, individuals or companies, to put up as much solar as they want, and if it's more than they can use, they can sell that back to the grid, um, it, it seems to be, and this is just from a layman's perspective, a great way to increase the, the overall portfolio of renewables in the state without necessarily the state putting out any capital outlay. You know, Dr. Moser, I, I wanted to ask before we, we have a couple minutes left before we go, you know, everybody knows that there are cities in California that are filing for bankruptcy. We've got pension reform going and a lot of local governments are just underwater with budget issues and a variety of concerns that are putting a lot of pressure on them. How optimistic are you that this study on adaptation to climate change is going to make it to the forefront or to the front burner of local policy decision makers um, you know menu of things to get to things to do list for the foreseeable future hmm. how optimistic well you know I'm a I'm a realist I'm not mm-hmm. easily drawn to hope um, especially not rosy hope in the face of a really challenging condition and we are clearly facing those, not just with climate change, but as you say, um, the problems that local decision makers have even without it. Um, but I do like um, this quote by Oberlin College uh, professor David Orr. He defines hope, and he says, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Think about that. I love that. And that is exactly what I see among a lot of local op- officials. I mean, there's plenty of them who say, you know, we can't deal with this. But the ones who are actually on the leading edge of this, they are rolling their sleeves up. Um, and let me give you just one final example before we have to close, and that is, you know, every community has to deal with replacing or upgrading their critical infrastructure, roads, mm-hmm. um, whatever. Um, and one of the, the things that they have to do is, you know, do we put it in the same place, build it in the same way as we've always done based on historical conditions, or we build our expectations of climate change into that upgrade that we have to do right now. And, you know, if you do, you actually ensure functionality for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Um, at a relatively low extra cost, maybe 10 20% or so, but it is the money that you save um, when, you know, in two years from now, that road that you just rebuild without thinking about climate change breaks down because it, it's not built for, you know, all the extreme events that we're expecting, and it's it costing taxpayer money up the wazoo. 
Yeah. So to me, this is what I see people doing, and I see it all over California. I see it in other places around the country. And so my answer to you, how optimistic am I, is that I am optimistic and I have hope if we do roll our sleeves up in that manner. Well, I'm going to make a quick recommendation before we go. Next time we have a study like this, make one component of it a whole PR and marketing package so that local government officials can actually make infrastructure upgrades to our energy infrastructure and and roads and things like that with a climate change bent sexier to voters who don't understand why it's important to elect local government officials who have this stuff in mind. So we'll maybe if we could, if we could add that in, that would be really great for, for our local government officials. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.